thank you so much, everyone, for coming. And I know it's been probably a bit of an ordeal for people to get here, and that's why we started a little bit late, much to my great discomfort. Yeah, um, it's just been it's been very tense backstage because <laughs> the flowchart TikTok was just out of whack. It was. You wasn't quite sure what to do with itself. <laughs> Speaking of flowcharts, a show this big takes a lot of organisation and we... None of it done by me. (laughs) We came to realise fairly quickly on that we needed a little bit of help and what we thought might be handy was if we did actually do some kind of flowchart assigning jobs and there was only really one model for that which was the Brett Kenny flowchart. Now... (laughs) Now, you need to fill in the background of the, of the Brett Kenny flowchart just in case there is, like, one person among this 2,500-strong crowd who is not <laughs> totally rusted on to the model. So, last Christmas, uh, somebody in our Facebook chat 10 group posted a, an organisational flowchart that their brother, Brett Kenny, does for the family every Christmas. And it assigns Christmas jobs for everybody in the most meticulous detail you could ever imagine, from decorations, entertainment, uh, food. Putting pointless shit on tables that looks nice. Auntie Mary. Um, So we thought, you know, look, that's actually a pretty good model. So we called our friend Murph and said, because of course we couldn't be asked to do it ourselves, we said, Murph, could you please put together a Brett Kenny-style organisational flowchart, which she did for us. It's quite comprehensive. Uh, In charge, not sure, as always. That seems about right. Uh, This is for the Melbourne show. So hauling merch to Melbourne disguised as hand luggage. Gwen Blake, done. Uh, Embarrassing dance numbers, Lee Sales. Nailed it. Mm. Um, One-liners, Lee Sales, Annabelle Annabelle Crabb, new merch. Stand by. New merch turned around within 30 minutes based on tonight's one-liners, Gwen Blake. Panic baking, crab, tick. Pescatarian assessment, I've done that, so that's good. Uh, getting all flustered using the card doodad, Murph. Yep, I think we've... Uh, You'll be seeing a bit of that this evening. I think, I think we've nailed it. So thank you to Brett Kenny for the inspiration. And mm. I'd also like to uh, say that the legend himself, Brett Kenny, is here. Yeah, Brett Kenny! Get yourselves organised. It's Brett Kenny. Can I add? G'day, Brett. Can I add as well that poor Brett, you know, had never listened to the podcast, uh, was not not a fan of the podcast. Or read a book. Or read a book or had anything to do with it and suddenly, much like Hot Callum, found himself a cult figure in it. I mean, Brett, how do you feel about becoming a cult figure in a podcast you've never heard of? Well, my wife said I've got the perfect face for podcasting, so... (laughs) So that, was, that wasn't a problem. Obviously, the main question on our minds is, what do you think of our flowchart? Can you see any obvious holes? Can you give us a SWOT test on it? Uh, well, there's one over there I'm a little worried about. What's that? Well, Just be um, honest. Where was it? I saw something about contraception. And oh, that sort the... of didn't, didn't, oh, yes. didn't a... figure in our Christmas one, I can assure you. <laughs> Despite our Tasmanian and heritage. How is your family so big? <laughs> Uh, that is the medieval contraceptive device. That's the device that we use to record our podcast, to which you continue to be a stranger, Brett. So I can understand that that would be uh, confusing. Now, um, 
does the does the Christmas flow chart? Because obviously this room will be full of people looking for tips for Christmas. Um, does it actually prevent conflict at a family Christmas? Uh, it did in all but one instance, and the one problem we had was my father at that point was eighty five. And fair to say, in the past uh, 60 years, his effort for Christmas Day would under the heading of bludging. So we <laughs> gave him we gave him the responsibility of bringing the bread rolls. Now last year Christmas, but were they the Kaiser bread rolls or the Baps? I've seen both kinds in your flowchart. If, <laughs> if you look at me, we don't do anything small. They were big. Okay, <laughs> Christmas was on a Monday, and I think the preceding Wednesday he brought them round. He brought the bread round. <laughs> And threw it on the table and said, I've done my bit now, that's all I have to do. I said, well, well two things. These bread rolls, you know, Christmas is next Monday. He said, well, they're only five days old. What does it matter? And we said we wanted them cut up with butter. And he said they didn't have any. <laughs> Apart from that, it went, went seamlessly. I mean, at one point, the gas heater caught on fire. And lucky we just went to the chart, the organisational chart. <laughs> my son Liam was in charge of that. So he picked it up and threw it in the pool. And that was the end of that problem. Was that spelled out on the on the chart? I mean, as a as an in case of emergency, or is Liam well, specifically charged with using his initiative in the event of unforeseen circumstance? Well, it's the first time I've heard Liam an initiative used in one sentence. <laughs> but um, this is like I love how this is turning into a sick Kenny family burn, <laughs> which does lead me to my awkward next question, which is: Are you all related to Chris Kenny in some way? Um, not that I'm aware of, but right. as I said, we're Tasmanian, so almost certainly. <laughs> All right, let's offend some more states full of people. Um, Brett, you're awesome. Uh, remind us of your day job. I mean, is this a helpful thing in your in your day to day occupation? Are you about to tell me that you're a, like a bear wrangler or something? I just don't know. Mm. No, I'm an accountant. <laughs> Get your past done here. You know it'll be good. Now, um, Brett, one thing that you won't understand about what's happening to you right now is that uh, we have decided to decorate you with the highest honour in the podcast community, which is the recipient of the Smug Bunt apron. Uh, we've, we've hand-amended this one to read novelty apron, Brett Kenny. Tick! So take that along to Christmas. Thanks, Brett. Thank you. Woo! Thank you very much, Brett Kenny. Ah. <sighs> I really hope, Brett, I, I really hope that Brett just never, ever listens to an episode of the podcast uh, because it would be more perfect that way. You know, we're coming up to our 100th episode. We are. My goodness. Yeah. Um, now, interestingly, we have actually been to a few films lately. And this year, actually, I've been to more films uh, than I reckon in the past five years. I, and I don't know how that is. And one uh, that I have seen recently is A Star Is Born. I love how you just, you casually mention, I've had all this time recently, so I've been to films whilst also writing my best-selling book. <laughs> <laughs> I've just been like, I've been on book tour myself with my lesser publication and uh, <laughs> just sort of shifting yours out of the way and giving mine a tiny bit more prominence. And what I've noticed just, I, mean, I'm, I offer this by way of, you know, in parentheses before we continue with the discussion that you're hoping to have, um, <laughs> I just noticed that I, I look at the ones, uh, I look at all the big selling books and obviously there's the Warney and there's the Salesy and sometimes, like today I saw you together, like 
perched together next to the Booker Prize winner, which was lovely. Actually, Crab had a fantastic idea for a segment in this show that unfortunately we couldn't pull off because Shane Warne's off signing books somewhere and then he's commentating on the Gold Coast tomorrow. But Crab said we should have a segment called Another Satisfied Customer where we pull in people that I've interviewed and ask them about the experience from their end. (laughs) And the great news is that Warney was totally up for it, (laughs) except for this urgent other engagement that he then (laughs) developed. But... um, (laughs) <laughs> um, I do... What was, my, what was I just saying? Um, my a Star is Born? Damn it. No, no, no. I have one more interesting thing to say. Or you could just talk about, about A Star is Born. Oh, no, no, yes. I uh, know the, the bookshops. And um, the one that I'm noticing all the time is the one about being a barefoot financier. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's the barefoot, everywhere. Yeah. What is it? I just... I want to ban on investor. anybody that's barefoot or naked or in other ways not appropriately attired for what they're planning to do. Like, I just think, <laughs> Enough. Do I trust an investor or an investing agent or advisor more because they are not wearing shoes? No. Why don't no, you do as your next one with the barefoot cook? I'd trust Brett Kenny. <laughs> do, the, do the barefoot cook for your next one and see if it helps sales. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It just seems a bit not right in the kitchen. I always wear shoes in the kitchen. Dangerous. Mainly because I don't sweep enough and it makes me feel creepy when I walk across the floor. But um, the one thing that I looked – I. <laughs> Gosh, I hope the barefoot investor isn't in the audience. And if you are, mate, I'm sorry. But um, I flipped open the flyleaf and he signs the millions of copies of that best-selling book. Um, you got this, Scott Pape. And then <laughs> I sent it to a friend. I won't embarrass her by saying uh, who it was, but let's just call her Miranda. Um, <laughs> who replied, uh, I would hand amend that with, yes, unfortunately, if I got that for Christmas. <laughs> Now, you my, got this. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I don't like to, you know, derail these fascinating anecdotes of yours, but how about a star is born? Sure. You keep pitching them and I keep missing them. Uh, well, you'd be pleased to hear. I know you've seen a star is born. Well, I don't know. Do you want to say something about a star is born first? Is that what you'd prefer? I'd like to just give you a nice underarm bowl to talk about your things. Thank you. I'm like that. Very kind of you. Uh, so, I know that you've been to see A Star is Born, and I'm desperate to go and see it myself. But in almost history's only recorded instance of be- me being organised about anything, I have uh, pledged with Jeremy to see the former remakes first. So, the 57 version, or is it, oh no, 54 version, um, with uh, Judy Garland and James Mason. Tick, seen it. Only fell asleep a couple of times. Um, And then I saw the Babs version, 1967, with Chris Christopherson. And Jeremy said to me, you would just not be able to pick Chris Christopherson out of a lineup." And I thought, I reckon I could, actually. I mean, I didn't think he was a very good premier of New South Wales, but I mean, he... (laughs) Oh, no, that was the other chick. Um, Can I ask, did Babs have the long fingernails in that? Yeah, she yeah, had, okay. she had plenty of fingernail. Yeah. And yeah. also she had the full Afro frizz perm, which was brilliant. She just looked like this incredibly beautiful Afghan hound for the whole thing. <laughs> it was like beautiful. So a star is... That's bo- not so a burn, by the way. I'm not throwing shade on Babs. She just looked amazing. Can I just, since you've set the standard for asides, I'm just going to na- quickly nip into one. Barbara Streisand. Um, there was a wonderful episode of James Corden's Carpool Karaoke recently with Barbara Streisand, which I really enjoyed because I love Barbara. 
surprisingly. Um, and I would say about conservatively 15% of our recreational conversations do have something to do with Barbara Streisand. <laughs> I just hope that you're aware of that. Like, it's just like a friend wouldn't let a friend go on like that without saying something. <laughs> so, um, what about when you watched that concert with her and her sister? Oh, it was great. <laughs> also, there's a great one on Netflix where Barbara – it's a concert with an interval and in the interval she goes backstage and calls Joe's, which is a seafood restaurant in Miami, and orders crab and she just rings up and goes, it's Barbara. And he just goes, oh, Miss Streisand. He knows straight away who she is. She's like, I want six lobsters and I want the things you do for the kids with the chicken nuggets for the, after the show in my hotel room. Anyway, um, Barbara's in carpool karaoke and firstly they made an excellent decision, which is they let Barbara be in the driver's seat instead of James. Perfect. That's so good. Absolutely. For do you think that... she rang up Joe's and made them do it? Or like it's just, hello, it's Barbara. I'll be driving. Yes, <laughs> yes, of course. I'm sure. Anyway, they get somehow talking about computers and she says whenever her computer would break down or things wouldn't work, she would just ring Steve Jobs. No. Yeah. no. She would go. <laughs> she would literally ring up and go, Steve, it's Barbara. My email's not working. <laughs> oh, my. That is my dream. Oh, right? it was fantastic. How far could you go with that? Just like, I'm thinking about dropping into a Catholic service this weekend. (laughs) Is that the Pope? Can you swear that out for me? It's Barbara. (laughs) It's Barbara. Anyway, so a star is born. You could do that. Given that all the the star, a star is born, it's the same plot in every one of these films. Right, so the plot is, and the the amazing thing that I uh, noticed about watching these two earlier, I mean, actually the first um, Star is Born was written um, in part by Dorothy Parker and was made in the 30s. I didn't watch that one. Um, but it was remade um, with uh, with Judy Garland and then remade again with, with, with Babs and Chris Christopherson. Um, anyway, this, the plot is the same uh, in each of them, surprisingly, uh, which is that there's this sort of like OTT kind of super famous male performer who is kind of um, gone to see it a little bit, still intensely famous, but really messed up, a drunk, um, embarrasses himself and is just sort of about to just flame out big time, meets this incredible young woman who's working in a bar or whatever and hears her sing and realises that she's a genuine star, gets her a start, they fall in love her career takes off and his bombs and then what happens in their marriage and whatever. And now I'm assuming that that is what happens. pretty much exactly the plot, yeah. yeah. But the thing that I love about the series is that – it's not even a series really – what I find really interesting about um, these movies, um, the older ones, is that they've – the, the, the woman is the real star of the movie and is billed as such, even in an era where, you know, the headlining actor was always male. So Judy Garland is the headlining actor in A Star Is Born um, in the 54 version and Babs is totally the queen of the 67 version and they're both kind of unmistakable, unmissable casting decisions where the women who have been cast in that role have been cast because of their incredible musical stardom and not because they're a sort of beautiful Hollywood, you know, actress or whatever. Well, I thought Lady Gaga was an absolutely inspired piece Perfect. of casting uh, I mean, for, to continue in that vein. And also because Lady Gaga is um, like – 
until I saw this film, I would not have recognised her in the street if she were dressed as herself because but she's always in the But if she had a meat dress on, you'd be like, you'd narrow it down, wouldn't you? Like if she's just wearing... <laughs> if she was wearing like a green wig. A few wig chops and a... or maybe a schnitzel on dress-up night, you'd be like, pretty sure. I couldn't be entirely sure. <laughs> um, and so she's very, in the early part of the film, really stripped back a very natural sort of look. And so I actually went home and immediately was watching video clips of Poker Face and Telephone because I could not believe it was the same person. Like I just kept thinking, I just want to see some Lady Gaga clips because I can't believe it's the same person. But she was just absolutely fantastic. I, I found... The plot, because it's very familiar, because it's been done a lot, is almost like a borderline cliche now, I think. But it was really elevated by their performances, Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, who's in the Chris Christopherson role. And uh, their chemistry is absolutely fantastic. Is it in the other films, the chemistry between the leads? Well, the Christopherson-Streisand one is off the charts, I reckon. See, a lot of people said to me, oh, the Garland one's really great, the the Babs one. Yeah, that's the conventional wisdom, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I was just in a needy place when I watched it. I kind of really loved it. Like, it's it's a typical 70s kind of musical pick where it's like the, the, the songs are way too long and sort of indulgent and whatever. And there's just a whole lot of bits where it just cuts to Chris Christopherson and Barbara Streisand on a horse. They're both wearing ponchos. <laughs> like, they're just galloping around or they're rolling around in the mud like it's just a bit – because they get a ranch together, obviously. Is the, is the super famous song in that, it's Evergreen, right? Is that what it's called? Is, I don't know. Is it Evergreen? Hum it. Yeah. <laughs> Love no. Is that, yes, 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 yes. Oh, God. Have I just actually asked you to sing something? You what gotta, is wrong with me? <laughs> you've got to hold your mic like this when you're babs because of yeah. your fingernails. You've got to – your mic's like this. Um, uh, in she's the so other, bewitching, though. Like, she's just so – Barbara. Yeah, yeah, she's incredible. She's so beautiful and ludicrously talented. Actually, like the best bit of the film is the gig that she's performing with her two backup singers. They're called the Oreos for reasons that will become God. clear if you think about it, which is like, okay, this is early in the film. Um, and she's so kind of sassy and kind of – she's punchy. She's a credible voice and her – her delivery is just amazing. It's worth it for for that number, which Chris Christopherson ruins by stumbling in drunk and picking a fight with somebody. <laughs> she says, hey, you're ruining my show. So <laughs> and, good. Oh, that was a good impersonation of Thank her. Thank you very much. Um, do you, in those versions, is you, do your sympathies lie with her exclusively or do you have sympathy for the husband figure as well? I think in both cases, look, the men... The, su- the supporting guys do a pretty good job and Chris Christopherson takes his shirt off a lot. He's very ripped <laughs> and he's got like incredibly tight jeans on. So he, he does that whole 70s, hi, I'm on a horse sort of thing, uh, which is great. Like he's really good. But both the women are so incredibly luminous that you don't really, you know, you're always watching for them. Yeah, that it was – I reckon like this in that film too. And I think in some ways it was a very generous decision of Bradley Cooper, who's also the director, um, to cast somebody who's such a, an incredible talent and superstar because I was thinking as I was watching it, Bradley Cooper's singing is just sort of okay. Do you think um, he – so he actually has to sing and yeah, does he, and he pull did it quite off? a bit of work apparently to get up to speed with it. Um, wouldn't but be problem intimidating is, sure, at all, would it I'm, really? I'm sure his singing is probably fine if it's not – constantly being pitted against Lady Gaga. So I think it's really hard when you're up against someone like that. But but as I said, the performances are 
really, I think, quite balanced and it works quite well. And it was a long-ish film and I hate long films and it definitely held my attention for the whole time. interferes with your need to be home in bed by nine. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Cruising Um, for abusing tonight, love. (laughs) It was great. The other thing, because I found Lady Gaga so sort of – she is a little Streisand in that quality that – you know when Barbara Streisand's on screen, you're just constantly looking at Barbara Streisand because she's just so unique. Um, Lady Gaga's a little bit like that as well. And so as well as watching the video clips of her songs, I watched – there's a doco on Netflix called Five Foot Two, which is about her. Um, and it was really um, interesting. I, I didn't realise she has she suffers from really chronic pain. She had a hip injury. She broke her hip a few years ago. And so there's quite a few scenes where she's being massaged and worked on and seeing doctors and just like lying there weeping in, in pain. Um, and it goes into the sort of creative process of her working on an album and also her connections with her family with whom she's very tight. Um, and the sort of collaboration that goes into her look and what she looks like and all that sort of thing. It's slightly annoying because she does that thing that you sometimes see with, I think, arty people, which is um, they speak, particularly famous arty people, they speak in these sort of riddles and just word salad that makes no sense, but everyone around them acts like they're just dropping profound pearls of wisdom. So she's always saying things like, I just feel like if we could make it more crunchy but keep the smooth that then you know the fire will just rain and then like is she asking for a sandwich yeah that's right (laughs) do you do do you know what i'm saying and you're just like i got no fucking idea what you're saying but everyone else seems to be like oh yeah that's genius like there's a little bit of that that goes on with it imagine living that nightmare when you get to the point where you think hang on a minute am i talking total crap and everyone's disagreeing with me (laughs) it'll be a very terrifying i mean i'm sure you're approaching that moment like um (laughs) Did she play the role in that kind of – because the thing that struck me about both the Judy Garland and the Barbara Streisand was they were both so kooky. Like they didn't play it like sex bombs at all, um, although both quite sexy, but they were just – they were kind of like these incredibly um, funny and kooky personalities. Does, so just, does Barbara play it like um, the fast-talking, you yeah, know, Barbara yeah. that we sort of know? Yeah, a little bit. And so yeah. how does Judy Garland do it? Well, she's just kind of like, like she's just right. the pocket rocket kind of thing. And right. she's pretty businesslike, you know, she's not, she's in love with him, but she's not constantly kind of spooning and carrying on, you know, right. she's highly, she's highly, <laughs> why is that funny? Did I just say something rude? Um, I don't know, they're not, they're not kind of these sort of languorous screen vixens or anything. Right. But I don't, like, I never think of Lady Gaga without, well, I don't ever think of her as sort of kooky or funny or I think she's incredibly talented, but I, what's the personality vibe on the way she plays Well, that's that role? part of her genius is that you don't know because it's all in the performance. So, you, so you've got sort of no idea really who Lady Gaga actually is behind all of that, you know, sort of art that's that she's got there um yeah anyway i i i reckon it'll probably clean up at the oscars i thought it was good yeah so hey i um read a rock and roll biography i mean memoir i read lily allen's memoir um because i heard someone talking about it on this podcast that i've started listening to a little bit called the high low which is a um, british podcast which is these two women just crapping onto each other about (laughs) stuff that they've read Wow. Obviously, would, I was suspicious. Who would listen to something like that? They're a lot posher than us. They're called, like, you know, Candida and, you know, Tabitha <laughs> or something. Like, I think we, we bring a certain bogan quality that uh, 
that, that they lack. But well, the way they were talking about this Lily Allen um, memoir made can me... I, can I just show some complete ignorance? Who exactly is Lily Allen? I know she's a sort of like British celebrity. She's a, a rock star. I right. wouldn't say... Or a pop star, I'd say. She's a pop star. Right. Um, and her father was a, um, a sort of a pretty well-known comedian and actor and she um, sort of burst onto pop stardom uh, when she was quite young and she went through a couple of widely publicised sort of breakdowns and a bit of drug use and then she got married and had a baby and and she had a a stillbirth actually which was just terrible and then she had two more children and anyway all of this is wrapped up um in in the the book that she's written which is actually a really cracking memoir Mm. you know how you can read memoirs by famous people um and you can see that it's sort of out there for a reason everyone's buying it because they're very famous she's put a lot of um risk into this memoir so she talks about how she um how she neglected her family basically was in this sort of terrible um spiral of drug use and just basically left her kids and her husband went on tour shagged a lot of people that she shouldn't have shagged and then um she goes into um a lot of the controversies that she had being in the public eye also um she had a stalker for a long time which was an entirely traumatic experience for her which she outlines very clearly but it's so broken you know she's she talks about um all these terrible decisions that she made but also terrible things that were visited upon her and by the end of it you just think that's an honest book like it really is um it is quite the read I I really liked her a lot at the end of it actually and is it written by her herself yeah right yeah. It, she's not a great writer like I mean it's um it's the strength of it is in the candor of the of the storytelling and it's actually a really interesting glimpse into what it's like to be in the middle of that bubble. I remember when we were talking about um, a couple of years back I saw that um, uh, the um, documentary about Amy Winehouse mm. and I felt really unsettled after watching that because I remember, you know, when she was just this sort of spiralling into chaos figure and people making jokes about Amy Winehouse. I just thought, God, how bizarre to be in the middle of that. And this book is actually a really good kind of explanation of how that feels. The one that I think about in that context where just because times have changed is Monica Lewinsky that I just think now, like you look at it and you go, oh, my God, she was the total butt of a million jokes and now you just think about it and think, oh, my God, how shameful. Yeah, I think that's a really good um, signpost for how attitudes have changed around sexual harassment and I just, yeah, I feel really ashamed when I think of of the sorts of, you know, you watch a TV show and the entire first opening comedy routine would be about Monica Lewinsky jokes, which is pretty cruddy really when you look back. Mm. It's quite shocking. It's not that long ago. Um, While we're on rock biographies, I also saw. Yes, as we so often are. (laughs) (laughs) I also saw Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, now can I just hear, of people who've seen it, give me some applause if you liked it. Give me some applause if you thought that it just glossed over Freddie Mercury's life and you weren't that happy with it. Okay. 
Yeah, it's interesting because the critics have um, been pretty harsh with it and said it's a very paint-by-numbers sort of film that's like, you know, then they did this, then they did this, then they did this, then they did this. Um, And the fans have been pretty outraged by that and said, no, it's really entertaining, it's a great film um, and all the rest of it. I am a gigantic Queen fan. Um, Really? (laughs) I think that... All of the above is true. I think it is a paint-by-numbers film and nonetheless I found it wildly entertaining um, for a few reasons. One is that I guess the issue with it is it, it does gloss over, you know, definitely Freddie Mercury's life and all of that sort of stuff. And there's another film that goes through, you know, relies heavily on music and nostalgia, so it's pushing the same buttons but it is a much deeper, richer film which is Almost Famous. Um, And Almost Famous, when you're watching, I think teaches you something about or connects with you in a way about life and human nature and growing up and love and rejection and loss and all that sort of stuff Um, and, and the role of music in a person's life. Bohemian Rhapsody, it has some of the same buttons to push but it doesn't push them in as sort of, I think, authentic away as Almost Famous did. But because the music is just so phenomenal, I found it a very joyful experience because every song that comes on, you're just constantly swept up in, oh, my God, another great song, another great song, another great song. They also do a brilliant job of recreating the Queen Live Aid concert at Wembley Stadium. Um, And also the guy who plays Freddie Mercury does I had low expectations because I thought I just don't see how anyone can capture even a fraction of the charisma of you know really one of the superstar entertainers of the 20th century I just it, it's an impossibly hard thing to do and he actually did he he I thought did a really good job of it and he did I think in the um Wembley Stadium bit probably the only thing you could do which is basically just straight mimicry like every every arm angle every hip thrust every movement was just absolutely mimicked from exactly what Freddie Mercury did um and you just it was quite I I was crying in that because it was just electrifying and you felt like oh god what an incredible talent and how amazing would it have been to be there was it like um when you were looking back on Shane Warne scoring his 700th wicket it was a lot like that I mean (laughs) Sorry. It's funny I just, you think. I know I'm, just, I'm just mercilessly shoving a stick into your spokes there, but like, did everyone see when she finally inter- interviewed Shane Warne? And it was like, it's actually, weirdly enough, and you've always known that you wanted to interview Shane Warne, and it was one of your great interviews, split up over two nights, like, go and watch it if you didn't see it. It was the best Shane Warne interview I've ever seen, and like, I've seen a couple. <laughs> <laughs> But there's this moment where they're sitting at the MCG and he's about to, like, share everything with Sales about his private life. But then uh, Sales says, sitting here with you at the MCG, uh, Shane, it's, um, it's impossible not to think of that electrifying moment where you captured your 700th wicket. And at which point every single person who's ever met Lee Sales is like chucking stuff at the telly, going, bullshit! You would have no idea. 
<laughs> my oldest friend from school sent me a text and said, um, hey, I'm just watching your interview with Shane Warne and you've just said to him, you know, how wonderful it was to recall there at the MCG the taking of his 700th wicket. Oh, yes, the, the hours you and I have spent talking about the Australian cricket team. Oh, the, the, you know, the talk about who was the better wicketkeeper, Marsh or Healy. You fucking fraud on the Australian people. <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody and Shane Warne have made me think about something that I find really interesting. Um, and I think my interest in it was sparked by the Keith Richards memoir, where he has this really... I mean, that's a fantastic rock memoir. God, the rock memoir theme, my God. Um, I did not know that this is where this was heading, by the way. But anyway. <laughs> um, he has a chapter where he talks about what is it like when you're one of four people on a stage and there's, you know, 60,000, 80,000 people there. What does it feel like and what does it sound like when you're the person at the front of that? And he, he explains it really amazingly, actually. It's just it's a fantastic piece of writing and it gives you a sense of what it must be like and it also gives you a sense of how weird that must be. Imagine if we could somehow imagine what it would be like <laughs> to be in front of a large group of people. Like, how, how would we... How could we possibly... I'm, I'm getting to that. Oh, okay. Sorry. If I had no idea you had a plan. Right. <laughs> so in Bohemian Rhapsody, of course, because you're watching like Freddie Mercury's sort of mastery of getting the crowd to do things um, and their big, you know, anthem numbers that everyone sings along to. And Warney, when I asked about, you know, that 700th wicket memory that we shared, um, he said... And it also explained really well how when you're going to bowl uh, and it's, it's a you know, very um, key moment in the game where it's really close and there's only a few runs in it. and a Very accurate use of key vocab here. Well done. <laughs> We're all on your side. You're in the final over. Um, <laughs> you've set your fieldsman at silly mid on and silly mid off and <laughs> all of those things. <laughs> you've walked back, you've rubbed your ball, you're ready to go. <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> he said, so he said this silence descends where it's, you know, like, you know, a tense silence where like everyone's almost not breathing because so much is hinging on the ball. And then he was talking about the context of the 700th wicket and he said um, the sound when the wicket was taken of the crowd erupting was like nothing he'd ever heard before. It was really amazing. Um, and I would love to know what that sounds like. And because we've got 2,500 people here, I'm going to test it. Oh, so man. can Do you I please... again? I want you to bowl. All right. So I'm going to bat and you're going to bowl and you're all going to do the crowd thing okay? So is anyone going to heckle me as I bowl? Or like, no, it's going to be, be tense, It's going to be tense silence because okay. it's the wicket for the game, okay? So all can right. you go over there? Well, I'm convinced already. This looks exactly like a cricket game. So what I want... <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's right. I'm like the captain. I'm just like... <laughs> um, and so what I want you guys to do is I'm going to do like some pretend commentary like, you know, Annabelle Crabb, uh, okay, she's getting ready to, the, to bowl, you know, there's only two runs in it, da, da, da. And so I want you guys to be not giggling and stuff <laughs> like that. I want like tense silence, like a lot Possibly is Possibly your least it. scientific crowd experience experiment, yeah. yeah, I'd say, but I mean... I could be wrong. <laughs> and then I'm going to go three, two, one, out, and I want you guys to erupt. But like are you going to – do I get to go up in an appeal first? <laughs> well, no, you just – I'm a bowler. I'm bowling. You just go when – it, when it's three, two, one, out, you can just do like warning, like, yeah, just do all of that. But okay? I, you have to appeal first. No, you're not going to be an appeal. It's just a clean – it's, it's clean bowled. 
It's clean bold, okay? Oh, Warren would still have something to say. For the <laughs> I'll be playing the role of, Steve, of Shane Warren. <laughs> I was not about to call him Steve. Come on. Not, not for the first time. I really wish actual Warney were here tonight. Um, so it's clean bold. I'm You're not go, even at the crease. Just pretend for the love of God. All right. Um, I'm commencing my approach. So I'm going to go three. I'm going <laughs> I'm I'm to go. So all you have to do, don't even, you don't even have to pretend to actually bowl. Just yes, pretend I am. to throw. I'm right? going to. Okay, good. All right. But don't make the audience laugh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what I want from you guys is tense silence. <laughs> tense silence. Come on, tense silence. You heard it. <laughs> Tense silence. Come on. Tense. Be adults. <laughs> Tense. Tense silence. And when I go three, two, one, out, I want you to erupt like she's just taken the wicket that has done the match, okay? Like as if you were actually at the MCG because I want to hear what that sounds like when that wall of sound comes, okay? So, all right. Here we are at the MCG. This is the wicket that is going to take the match. That's excellent. Tense silence. Three, two, one, out. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. That really is quite something, actually. I can see why people would get addicted to that. that okay, was now that. Right. <laughs> now One that of we've my done... best balls ever. Okay. I've got some other crowd things I want to test out too, oh. <laughs> if that's all right. Okay, I want to test out that Queen, we will rock you. I want to hear what that sounds like, okay? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's great. And then you guys have got to sing We Will Rock You, of course. Buddy, you're a boy, make a big noise, playing in the street, gonna be a big man someday. You got mud on your face, big disgrace, kicking your can all over the place. We will, we will <laughs> Everybody. <laughs> Sing it. <laughs> That's awesome. Wow. Okay, I want... Now she's drunk on power. Like, you know what you're doing? It's like, it's like what's that movie where you shouldn't feed the little critters? The, is it Gremlins? <laughs> Yeah. I don't think I will make you do it. There's a poorer analogy than I was hoping for, actually. <laughs> I don't think I will make you do it, but I would really love to see Radio Gaga too with the, you know, the hands, like, all we hear is Radio Gaga, Radio Goo Goo, Radio Gaga, all we hear is. Except no one's singing. You're That's because I'm not doing it. You're going to be like singing like the Freddie Mercury. Okay. No, there is actually one true last thing I want to do. Imagine that. <laughs> because... Um, we always get quite nervous before we do these shows, even though the crowd's always really warm. And I think that somewhere in my head, I fear that what's going to happen is after about 10 or 15 minutes, there's going to be like a low rumble in the crowd as people turn to their neighbour and go, is it just them talking? <laughs> like, is, that, is that all it is? Like, they're not even going to do a song or anything. I just worry about the people who have come because they think it's a talk about your best-selling new book. It's <laughs> <laughs> just like... And then, I'm, and then I'm worried that's going to escalate into, like, a couple of randoms going, 
oh, get off. <laughs> and then it's going to get out of control and be like full booing and like really angry booing. And, and then so, like petrol-soaked rags on sticks. <laughs> and so I want to know what it sounds like. Because we always get like a very warm reception. I want to know what it sounds like when you're getting a really hostile booing at you. So can we... <laughs> Get off! <laughs> wow. Can you just do some cheering again to get that out of the room? <laughs> God. That's really unsettling. Far be it from me to ever approve of anything that you do, but that was actually quite cleansing. I feel like... <laughs> Now that we've had the boo, I'm, not, I'm less worried about it. I, reckon, I find crowd behaviour like a fascinating sort of thing, you know. It's, it's really interesting. It's also observable on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, what so have you much been... easier to organise an angry mob. <laughs> what have you been reading? Oh, we finally get to a book. <laughs> oh, no, hang on. We had Lily Allen, but that was a rock book. Uh, I've been I've been reading quite a bit lately. Um, I just finished um, Too Much Lip by Melissa Lukashenko. Such a great book. Um, she's a um, Queensland writer. It's a great family drama book. Um, a great one to travel with. Um, I mentioned this just as a tip because I totally recommend it. Um, and uh, it's about this family who um, whose ancestors have lived on this little bit of Queensland River and there's a local property developer that's coming in to kind of um, uh, develop it and the hero of the book, Kerry, is this sort of like tough motorbike riding chick and it's kind of like about her reconnecting, going back to the place of her birth and reconnecting with her Indigenous ancestors and she's just such an awesome character. You know, she's completely hardcore and really tough but full of love for the people around her and, and for her forebears. It's just like a really moving, great, funny, tragic – it's a great book. It's absolutely full of juice. I loved it. And just um, you saying Indigenous ancestors reminded me – you mentioned in passing the other day that you were reading something that I'm really keen to read and have heard good buzz about, which is a book called Dark Emu. Oh, yeah, Bruce Pascoe's book. Now, this came out a couple of years ago and I started reading it just um, in recent weeks just because, look, there's a front-page story in the Daily Telegraph having a big crack at the fact that um, the New South Wales education curriculum was introducing these, um, was programming all of these examples from Indigenous history of physics and agriculture and whatever. And they were having a real crack of it at saying, like, oh, it's all political correctness gone mad and whatever. And... Um, there's a writer at The Guardian who wrote this incredibly um, – Luke, his name is. I um, can't remember his last name. Um, he has written this sort of very patient critique of the newspaper's response to this initiative because he's an, ex um, uh, an academic who has been working in this field. And I just thought – I found it such a moving piece of writing. Um, I'm so blind. Luke Pearson, sorry, his la last name momentarily slipped my mind. Um, and his patience in his explanation of the fact that, you know, really, um, it is quite a good way to explain stored energy in physics if you use the example of someone throwing a spear. Like, it's actually a pretty good example. And he goes through all of these <laughs> sort of things that have been overlooked about in Australian history, about um, the... Um, the um, 
highly evolved agricultural and scientific and navigational methods that were totally overlooked by the European settlers when they arrived. And he kind of mentioned, I think, in passing Bruce Pascoe's book, and it's so gripping. This book is really a loving and careful extraction of all of this evidence from um, European settlers' diaries, building this case basically that far from the stuff that I think, you know, you and I were both probably taught at primary school that Indigenous culture was all about, you know, the hunter-gatherer nomadic model and, you know, you learn about the dream time a bit and about, you know, what is a didgeridoo and whatever, but nothing about this incredibly detailed and highly evolved systems that were in place and largely ignored by um, the settlers when they arrived. It's just, it's such a moving book. Um, and for instance, like just to take one example, there's, he talks about the discovery of in Walgett, um, uh, stone mills that were obviously used for grinding um, seeds and, and making them into flour that were dated back something like 30,000 years, basically providing strong evidence that um, Indigenous people in Australia were baking about 15,000 years before anybody else in the world was doing it. And it just, it's such a beautiful book and full of these revelations that make you, um, A, incredibly proud, but B, also incredibly sad and outraged that I, you know, I've been ignorant of a lot of this stuff my whole life. And anyway, it's a, it's a superb book. I'm reading a book that that reminds me of a little bit, which has been on the bestseller list forever, which is why I'm finally reading it, um, called Sapiens um, by Yuval Noah Harari. Um, You know, it's a big sort of fat book. It's The subtitle's A Brief History of Humankind, and actually Indigenous Australia features in it quite a lot because of the age of the civilisation. It's one of those books that it's very easy to read, even though it's, you know, sort of crosses a lot of disciplines, science and anthropology and various things. Um, It... It's one of those books where every page you go, really? Is that true? My God. Like, it's just for me, I mean, maybe I'm just completely ignorant of some of this stuff, but I just found so much in it that I had not either wasn't aware of or hadn't thought of in that particular way. So one of the things... For example, Justin Langer, the the current (laughs) coach of the... Um, It... One of the first things it talks about is, uh, so say when you have um, different species of animals, so say you have cats, you know, the cat the cat family, within, you know, the sort of, I think it's genus is the word of cat, there's lion, tiger, jaguar, whatever, we all know that they're all part of the cat family. Is so a mere cat a cat? Oh, it's not really a cat, is it? I don't know if a mere cat's a cat, but I don't think it is actually. Anyone? Is, you, is it a mere cat a cat? No, no. no. Didn't think so. I, I suspected not, actually. <laughs> <laughs> What about when that meerkat got abducted from the Perth Zoo? Did it get that returned? Was, yeah, it did. Right. But I was just thinking, well, who was on duty that night? Because the meerkats are all like... <laughs> someone was napping. Someone needs Cat to be sacked. <laughs> that century meerkat on that night needs yeah. to be sacked. Phoning it in. So in the same way, so humans, the sort of, you know... Um, I think I'm not sure if I'm using every scientist here is going. Oh, for God's sake! I'm You're not sure if is the right yeah. word, but home, like so, we're Homo sapiens, and we're the sort of it'd be the equivalent of if say tigers and jaguars and everyone else died out, and all that was left was lions. So there was also Homo erectus and Homo other sorts, and we just happened to be Homo sapiens, and we're the ones who stuck around. But there were other types of humans, and I just thought, oh my God, that is. And I read it by my friend actually, who teaches like high school science. What is this true? She's like. Yes, like where, where were you in grade nine biology? 
I don't know. This is news to me. Um, so, Ladies and gentlemen, Australia's premier current <laughs> affairs host. <laughs> what? <laughs> no. Um, then it goes through talking about what was it that made Homo sapiens the... the people that got through and the others, you know, disappeared and the various theories around all of that. And one of the things it talks about is even before, say, the agricultural revolution was the cognitive revolution where we started being able to use our imaginations and concoct stories. Um, And it talks about the power of that because the way the world is organised is because largely we believe in a whole lot of imaginary stuff. Like I believe that in my purse is a piece of paper that's worth $20, but it's actually just a piece of paper. Um, I believe in justice and freedom and all of that sort of stuff. That's just all something that was concocted out of somebody's imagination. Those things aren't actually real constructs. They're completely imaginary. What about how you've come here to sit on a piece of wood and talk to two and a half thousand other people and before you did that you you strapped some spiky things to your feet and uh, also coloured in your face for an hour? (laughs) Ridiculous. That's quite weird too. And there's just lots of little things like there's a bit where he talks about how because of course then when you're talking about imaginary things you know, religion is imaginary structure. And some of these imaginary structures are ways of unifying diverse groups of people. So you all believe in the same thing and so that unifies you. Um, And so religion is a powerful thing like that. And then he gets into a discussion talking about often, um, you know, a religious argument will be, well, that's unnatural. So say talking about homosexuality, it's unnatural. And he says, well, actually... Um, in biology, anything that's possible is natural. Like what's unnatural is that a lion mates with a monkey and it makes a new animal. Like, no, that can't actually happen. Therefore, that is unnatural. If something's possible, then it's natural. Nature says that that's okay because it can actually occur. Um, so there's all these really interesting... Your phone is of- flashing. I think it's Erica Betts. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a... Um, So there's all these things that just make you sort of stop and think. Anyway, it's a very – I'm not surprised it's on the bestseller list because it's one of those books that you find yourself constantly turning to friends and going, did you know blah, 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 and then, you know, you keep talking about it all the time. Uh, You're annoying in bed read where you're like, did you know this? Exactly. Other person, not probably not. um, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Trying to sleep right now. Um, And – I've also been doing some Ooh, less... Have you finished with Sapiens? Because I have a yeah. quick per- yep. like, quick yep. thing to just delicately insert in a totally Take natural away. way. Um, <laughs> Take it away. <laughs> uh, I read a book by a woman that we met in Perth called Angela Saini. She's a science mm. reporter for the BBC and she's written this total knockout book called Inferior. And she looks into um, the science of gender difference and she goes back through the history of all of humanity's attempts to show and prove that there is a deep difference between the genders in brain capacity, endocrine system, and it's like this incredibly precise analysis and stress testing of all of these experiments and pieces of evidence that have been held as highly influential and she kind of shows that they're all built on sand. It's the most incredible book and a really interesting 
and shocking, I have to say, for me, demonstration that everything that I always assumed about science, which is, you know, you think, well, science is sciency. It's definitely right, okay? It's proven, it's tested. But she explains a lot about the context of science and scientific research where she says, particularly on gender stuff, you can always find a publisher for a study that you do that demonstrates that there's a gender difference. It will be on the front page. There's always, you know, like the studies where it's been shown that women are absolutely demonstrably worse at rank parking than men or whatever because it's about spatial awareness and blah, blah, blah. So she just quite gently analyzes all the underlying assumptions and warping preconditions in the process of how um, theorems are tested and then retested and published and how they find publishers and so on. It's just a very useful read. Also, if you're ever going to have an argument at a dinner party, totally read this book because you are <laughs> sore Ted. She covers everything. You'll, you'll be carried out the door arguing. It'll be yeah, great. I was going to say, you'll <laughs> never be invited back. But... Um, not all my reading's been that highbrow, though. I have... That is such a relief because uh, that Sapiens book has been sitting on my tottering bedside table. I'm like, I'm so getting to you after I get through this literary thriller. Do you know what it rem- reminds me of? Guns, Germs and Steel by Jared Diamond. You it's like read that, that sort of, um, you know, where someone's gone, you know what, I'm just going to go for like the biggest possible sweep of something I can take and have a red-hot go at putting it in a coherent... You've got to admire it. It's like volume two of the Rudd <laughs> memoir. You're like... <laughs> 800 pages, dude. All right. Oh, man. Go for it. There are some fat bloke memoirs. Oh, well, not fat, fat bloke blokes, memoirs, right, right. but <laughs> blokes with memoirs. fat memoirs. So I reckon now. if you put Rudd Volume 2 uh, and then you added Kerry O'Brien, the memoir. No, a memoir. Uh, a memoir. And then you added Mike Carlton, you'd be able to get anything off any shelf in your house, I reckon. <laughs> And if you added Kevin's first, you could climb under the roof probably, I reckon. Um, ah, yes. Now, Just I... Nelson Mandela managed it in one. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> one thing I've got to say that has been walking out the door, like I've been tracking around, defacing your books, sneering at the books of others, see my earlier remarks. Uh, and the thing that has been absolutely going crazy, and Summer's memoir has been selling very well, which is great because it is an awesome book. I think I've already talked about it to you. Um, Seriously, do yourself a favour, get that book. It is just an absolute page turner. And everything that you vaguely think you know that Anne Summers has done, she's done more than that. It's very interesting. But um, the thing that's really walking off the shelves is um, apparently Michelle Obama's memoir, which is freshly out. out, Yeah, yeah, becoming. Um, So the book that I read, which is not, you know, highbrow, but has been very popular, is called Scrublands by Chris Hammer. Um, If you liked The Dry by Jane Harper, you probably like it. It's what this genre they call bush noir. So I love bush noir. (laughs) I actually grew up in bush noir. Why haven't I written a hip novel? Like... Yeah, you should be I should. Yeah, you've got all the material right there. I'm already a gritty and yet lovable character. Who can, you know, reverse park a ute with a trailer on the back of it? My only technical skill, yes. <laughs> um, so the I premise... can also hypnotise a chicken. Didn't know that about me, did you? <laughs> I can. No, I did not. The premise is um, it's not a who. Luckily our rider contains chickens, so uh, I'll show you afterwards. 
<laughs> what, Ozzy Osbourne style out yeah. on stage? Oh, that should go down well with Peter. I know. Forgery. Best BBC writer ever was Mariah Cat. Carey when she was opening a, like, she was opening a Westfield shopping centre in London. And I think I can't remember how many Persian kittens it was, but they had to be white and they were all on her rider. She needed a pink stretch limousine and a number that I can't recall of white Persian kittens. And I just thought, that good would on be, you, Mariah. That's that would awesome. Be fantastic, though. Just imagine, like, all the white Persian kittens. It'd be beautiful. <laughs> I'd never get out of the limo. I'd just stay in there playing with the kittens. It'd be beautiful. And then the Australian newspaper would get a photograph of that <laughs> and you'd be finished. ABC Fat Cat with <laughs> indulges kitten fetish on the public purse. Mind you, you, it probably wouldn't be even – it would be the second par after everything else that's happening at the ABC. You'd be so. rung for a comment probably. What do you think about your mate and a kitten rider? It's a joke. <laughs> it's a kick in the guts for middle Australia. <laughs> so Scrublands um, – it just starts like one with... woman in, one woman in search of a sequitur. <laughs> Continued. It's it's not a who done it because the opening two pages establish this crime that's committed. It's a why. Why did it happen? So, opening page, second page. Um, people are gathering at church on a Sunday morning. The priest walks out. Bang, 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 bang. Just shoots off a heap of people. And a reporter a year later is tasked to go back to the town and find out how the town's coping in the aftermath of this thing. And it's accepted because you know they saw who did it. There's no like you know ongoing inquiry or anything. But the reporter starts uncovering a few things that don't sort of add up. Um, it's it's been it's got like four out of five stars on Goodreads. Uh, so people are sort of lapping it up. And it's been sold into multiple markets and all that sort of stuff. So it's a very just quick, easy read. So if that's that's your um, bag. Bush Noir. I actually um, finished a book by John Purcell called The Girl on the Page and it's about um, – so it's a, it is a, it's a literary page turner. It's an LPT uh, and it's about a, it's about a woman. Now, here's a, here's a confession. We both know John because he works at Booktopia. So every time we go out there to sign a giant pile of books and you go back there to deface mine, helpfully, <laughs> so that some people get really surprised when they get my book and it's got a rude message from you in it uh, – <laughs> We know that guy. Anyway, so he's written this novel um, called The Girl on the Page and it's about this girl who works in publishing. Her name's Amy and she's like, I'm sorry, John, but she's a total woman written by a man character because she's incredibly hot. She has legs that go on forever. She's like brilliant but dangerous. Just can you She's, just hold, can you hold that thought because the female protagonist love interest in Scrublands name is Mandalay Blonde. <laughs> Seriously, dudes, what is going on? Like, so I'm reading this and just going, this is hilarious. Because the other thing about Amy, the hot, penetrating, yet brilliant, troubled, she's a drunk and she's an absolute nympho as well. <laughs> like, so she loves nothing better than to just stay out all night, meet some random guy and then just, you know, go for it. Who doesn't? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Look, she's based on us, I think. <laughs> But I'm reading this just going... <laughs> anyway, but uh, look, her character develops uh, over the course of the book and she's this kind of hard-bitten, she's a kind of popular editor in a publishing house and she she cha- she turns sort of drab manuscripts into popular gold 
And then she gets called in to edit the um, novel that's been written by this woman called Helen, who is a proper, serious, difficult author. And she's married to um, Malcolm, who is an even more proper, difficult, serious author. And he's just finished this book that bizarrely, even though he describes it as a a horrible, bitter thing, a turd that should be flushed or something like that, it ends up, um, you know being incredibly critically received and is shortlisted for the Nobel Prize. Uh, I think it's the Nobel. Anyway, um, Nobel it becomes, Prize. yeah, it becomes. Oh. <laughs> it Just be- thought you might start with the Booker or something and work your way up. No, I can't, to be honest, I can't remember exactly which prize it is, but it's like a big one. Like it's not like the, you know, <laughs> North Mundra Creative Writing Award is all I'm saying. <laughs> I just, I'm. Sometimes I allow a tiny bit of license in my retelling of stories. <laughs> you cannot be unaware of this. Uh, anyway, and it becomes this really quite fascinating battle between the idea of populist writing and serious literature and how awkward the proponents of those two genres are around each other. It becomes – it's fascinating. And because John Purcell is a um, – is a book nerd and bookseller and deeply involved in the book industry and this whole novel is set in the book industry. It is like this real – it's described as a novel for book lovers, which it really is, but it, it manages to cross genres because it is this highly engaging plot, but it is it does also tangle with these issues about what how writers see themselves and and what – what is the, the point of what they write and what is the value of what they write. And it also has this great device at the end where all of the characters present in the index a reading list of what they oh, think you should great. read. It's like a really great idea. So overall, did you enjoy it? Yeah, really liked it, but it did have that thing where, and I said to Sales actually earlier that I wanted to discuss this, you said, Crab, you can't talk about that. You've talked about that two times in the history of this podcast already. And that is... How awkward is it when a guy you know writes sex scenes? In my How view, dare you defy me by raising this again? <laughs> oh, I just did it. Um, and so I did explain to John that I liked his book, but unfortunately we'd never be able to speak or meet again. Because <laughs> it's really like oh. the sex scenes are really like... Rah, 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 rah. There's a lot of like oh, over the bottom of the car action and stuff. Yeah, should have made you read some out. No, well, I, I couldn't. I just couldn't. I really couldn't. It's like when um, I did a book launch for Chris Yeoman and Steve Lewis's excellent book, The Mandarin Code, or was it The Marmalade Files? One of the two. And, um, and they wrote books together and they um, got together and went, we need sex scenes. All right. So they went to a beach house together and had a few <laughs> drinks. No, I'm telling you, this is what happened. And they had a few drinks and they both sat down and each wrote a sex scene. Oh. Like they, they divvied it up. And they, they will never reveal which of them wrote which sex scene in the book. <laughs> do you but know what? For a live show, we should do that and make each other read each other's out. We should, really. Yeah. Or not, actually. Not would also be a really good idea. <laughs> that would really work for me. Um, but <laughs> I, uh, I, when I launched that book, uh, took the liberty of reading copiously from both of the sex scenes and then getting the gathered crowd to vote on who they thought was the author. <laughs> And I think, for me, the moment came when I said, look, I really question the use of the term panty in a contemporary sex scene. Like, nobody calls them panties, dude. And but Steve undies- was like, uh-huh. And Chris was like, oh, what? So oh. I... I- <laughs> 
Catch him on Channel 9 I mean, what, do you say, what would you say instead? Because, like, undies is not a very sexy word. Well, I don't know. What would you um, – lingerie, would you say? But that just sounds a bit uh, – undergarments is too <laughs> prosaic. That's too Victorian. Undies. Imagine in the middle of some, like, hot sex scene, you're like <laughs> – He pulled down. No, no, no. I can't even <laughs> – He slid a hand up and grabbed her. <laughs> yes. It's not – Yeah. Also, yeah, what, G-banger? <laughs> I think G-string did feature in John's novel. I was just thinking, I don't, there, there isn't a good way to say it. So, really, you just tactfully avert the reader's gaze, I think, is the only way. Yeah, like a, like a film where, like, they have a kiss and then a camera just pans up to, like, the night oh, that sky That totally happens in um, A Star Is Born oh. when, when Barbara and Chris Christopherson uh, first get it on on the waterbed. Oh. Like there's just a bit of, yeah, obviously that would be a tricky sex scene to film because waterbeds are just like, sorry, they're just not built for that sort of encounter really. No. Uh, then there was just like a full pan to the uh, to the window or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's very... They next, like when they next appeared, they were riding a horse. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, now... Every time we do a Chat 10 show, we give a percentage of the proceeds to charity. Um, while I'm going to give the blurb, I'm going to ask Dr. Sebastian King wherever he is. Can you come up here, Dr. Sebastian? Dr. Sebastian King, who had no paging, idea he was Paging about... Dr. Sebastian King. Paging Dr. Sebastian King. Where are you? Oh, he's got out while the going's good. Oh, here, here he is. Oh, he's right at the back. Oh. Uh, could you dance down those stairs, please? Yeah, would oh, you? Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Don't do an injury to yourself. I'm so sorry. So um, we give uh, from the Melbourne shows to the Mel- Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Uh, Sebastian King, this is the charity we gave to last year as well. Um, we call him his unit, the bum unit, uh, because what we like to do is support charities that otherwise wouldn't get, you know, as much attention. The bum uh, unit is not one of the more glamorous units, it's right, not, it's doctor? Not Give it to us straight. Give them them Um, out a microphone. Sorry. I wanted to know which one of you is Babs and which one's Chris Christopherson. I think... I think with these... What do you think with these curls? It's probably a bit of Babs I think we're going to have to retire to fight about that one because I'm not (laughs) going to be Christopherson. And neither are you, I'm I'm guessing. I'm just going to hold my fingers like that, though. Can you tell us a bit about fundraising for the... Or tell us about the work you do and then tell us about fundraising for it. Um, well, it's very glamorous. It's looking after kids who are born um, with bowels that don't work or actually born without bottoms, um, so which happens, unfortunately. So we have about oh, 50, 60 kids every year around Victoria who are born where their bowels won't work at all or they're born without a bum. And so my job is to um, help create bums. Uh, it's glamorous, as I said. Plastic surgery of the anus is what I do. Um, so you can have a rhinoplasty or you can have an anorectoplasty. All right. Yeah. And so, um, so a lot of my work is looking after the kiddies and their families but also raising awareness because um, unlike... Many medical conditions, um, as you'd expect, bum stuff is not glamorous. Um, Do you find it difficult to like recruit someone to be the face of bum? It is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You get cheeks, but not the face. Yeah. 
Well, we love the work that you do and um, you. we love the humour oh, with wow. which you approach your difficult work and you also get an honorary. Oh, it says special. smug bum doctor. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, amended by my colleague and friendly sales. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. <laughs> Can I just say before, I mean, I don't know if Erica Betts is just like texting you with a finish time. Oh, it's coming up. No, but yeah. Look who is. Like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, it's Bob Catter again. Um, but I was just thinking this week, you know, um, and I, I suspect heaps of you in the group are, um, are podcast listeners and maybe you're in touch with the Facebook group that has was started unwittingly by us not long ago and has since just blossomed into this terrifying um, <laughs> uh, community that has just tentacles everywhere as the home of some of the nicest people in Australia. There was this week the most lovely story in that group and I just wanted to recap it for anyone here who wasn't um, on the uh, front line watching it unfold. Just gives you an just idea. Just before you do, can I just turn the alarm off on my phone that I She's set for 9pm? So, so at 9pm <laughs> it's going to go... This is actually a lovely story so I'm happy, I'm happy for you to run over. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> it began in 1962. <laughs> <laughs> Siri, reset alarm. <laughs> Okay, so there are about 30,000 podcast listeners who are in a um, Facebook group called Chat 10 Looks 3 Community and they're just lovely people who just come up with funny ideas and look after each other. And the best thing happened earlier this week, there's always great tales of people looking after each other, but a woman called Jackie Ann was uh, driving through Maruya and was taken ill. Jackie Ann um, has breast cancer and she developed an infection that was related to that. And so she was super sick, super fast, and so had to go to the Maruya hospital and was banged up, admitted... And there you are, like she's far from home, she's by herself, uh, she doesn't have any resources and her boobs really sore as well. And the nurse said, what would really work with that is cabbage leaves, we don't have any cabbage, sorry, and um, there's not enough staff to go and grab you one. So she's like, ow, 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 need a cabbage, what do I do? She thought, hmm, might just check in the group. So she puts up the world's most weird notice in the group, like... <laughs> Listen, uh, this may seem a little random, but uh, are there any are there any chatters in Maruya? Because uh, I really need a cabbage real bad, and I mean, <laughs> I mean, it'd actually be a really good blues song, really. Um, and uh, just wondered, you know, I can't really get out. Really need a cabbage, and she had a cabbage delivered to her room at the Maruya Hospital twenty three minutes later. <laughs> Thanks to, like, the network of ever-vigilant chatters who are just like, well, I know someone whose sister lives in Maria. Sure enough, like, phone calls go everywhere. The cabbage arrives. And um, not only that, but the chatter who brought the cabbage then was just like, oh, this looks a bit depressing. Here's some flowers. And also came back in the morning with a full, beautiful breakfast for Jackie Ann and then took her clothes to wash them. Oh, I know. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Nice people. So just, yeah, th thank you everyone in this community for being so absolutely lovely and kind and we appreciate all the love that we get but we more appreciate all the love that everyone that listens to our podcast shows to each other frequently to just complete strangers. So 
Thank you very much and thank you for coming tonight. That is Lee Sales' attempt to thank you for indulging her every whim uh, to experiment in crowd behaviour. But um, it's been an awesome night and we love you all. And thank you very much for coming and, and not noticing that it was terrible. Thank you very much. Woo! Bold. Thank you.